0: Isaac Morehouse, welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. I am coming to you live from my new studio, aka office, aka my house, (laughs) but a different house.
1: The new studio. I love it, man. I love it. Well, well how are we going to go ahead? How are we going to kick it off in the new studio, man?
0: I was just going to say, uh, you love it, but nobody else really does. This, this, is, <laughs> this has been a rough week. It's been a, a hard week. Uh, mostly because we had to move and, um, you know, we, we love where we live here in South Carolina and we were in a great house that we loved in a nice neighborhood and, uh, we're renters, and we have. I, I really don't want to own a home anytime soon. I've owned uh, a home uh, twice and regretted it both <laughs> both times. I just don't. Unless I'm gonna be a, in a house for at least ten years, I just don't feel like it's worth it. All the cost of the transactions and the down payment and all this stuff. And then you got to own it and take care of it. And you feel you're very locked in there and it's just not a good idea for most people in many, most situations I think, I mean there's exceptions, but this idea that everyone should own a home, which I used to buy into, uh, I find a little bit troublesome. So anyway, we've been renting here for five years, super happy with it. Um, and our landlord decided to sell. And so, you know, we had to find another house. It has been, we've been in this house now for two days TK. It's so weird. I mean, it's, it's sad. It's depressing. It's like a member of the family has died It, it and it's truly taken me by surprise because I am not a super sentimental person. I mm-hmm. learned in my teens, um, how to say goodbye to things and how to move forward without, you know, getting, getting through it. I had, you know, spent summers on mission trips with a bunch of you know, other teenagers and became fast friends and, and then moved away. Or, I mean, the trip ended and we both live on opposite sides of the country. This is pre Facebook and it was like crushing the first one or two times, but I kind of learned how to do that. And I'm a very forward looking person. Um, mm-hmm. maybe in part because nostalgia is, is, is too painful. Uh, like I just, you know, it's like you get that tinge of pain for the things that you miss. Um, but anyway, I did not expect this at all. I mean, the house we moved into, it's its a little bit larger. It's nice. It's in a neighborhood that's similar in many ways. It's only a couple miles away. Um, I have been blindsided, man. It has been really, really hard. Uh, me and my wife and my oldest son. My two girls are happy as, as clams, but uh, they just like new things. They think it's cool but it's, it's been sad. It's been, it's been kind of depressing. And I, uh, there's a couple of reasons that I want to sort of pick apart. Maybe you can help me dissect it a little bit. Let's do it, man. Um, first I got to ask you, have you ever, like when you were a kid, I know you guys moved. You had a big move that was really hard on you, right?
1: Oh man, it was super hard. Um, because it came for me right at like the age of 12. And I I was just, you know, going through that transition, adolescence, teen, you know, teenage years. And it wasn't just a move, but it was a radical move in so many ways. We moved from an apartment to a a house. We moved from the neighborhood that I grew up in, where I had all of my friends and I loved them very deeply and felt, felt really comfortable, to a neighborhood that was about 45 minutes away. We moved from the city of Chicago, the inner city, to the suburbs, um, which was a very different setup, very different type of lifestyle. And then then it was also just culturally. We, went, we moved from an environment where um, pretty much everybody in my neighborhood was black, and we moved to an environment where my family was the only people in the neighborhood that were black. And, you know, I was 12 years old. And I was just getting to that point of, you know, Getting comfortable with myself, making friends, and I felt like in so many ways the reset button had had been hit. And I'm processing all of these like difficult questions and complex realities and creative challenges and dealing with all of these radical shifts from the cultural difference, to, the you know being far away from my other place. That was one of the toughest things I had ever been through at life because did, did I wasn't you, dealing with that at the, with the wisdom of a 25 year old. I was I was 12 years old.
0: Did you hate your parents for it?
1: I hated my parents uh, for that for sure. And I remember my mom and I got into some uncomfortable uh, conversations and heated arguments. I, I wonder if she even remembers. I mean, because I'm like best friends with my parents right now. But I I, I resented them for at least, um, at least a few years. I even remember this one conversation where I think I frustrated her so much. That she says, well, maybe I'll find. I think she just said it in anger. Maybe I'll find someone you can stay with in the city. And I think she said that to scare me. And I was truly happy. I I, I was like, I lived with hope for like the next the <laughs> next week. And I remember coming back to my mom to follow up to see if she had found anyone for me to live with. And I and that's when I realized that she had just kind of said that in frustration. So, and so I was crushed, man.
0: <laughs> how did you? how did you move on? How did you get over it? Was it just time? Or was there any particular things that you remember making it easier to transition?
1: Man, you know, it's interesting because there are some forms of transformation that you choose because of the attitude you consciously decide to adopt. And then there are some forms of transformation that life just does to you. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, I always say that the the, uh, the process of becoming more flexible is the direct result of being stretched. It's not about the attitude you choose to have while you're being stretched. Being flexible is the product of just being stretched. So whether you got a good attitude about it or a bad attitude about it, if you're being stretched, you will become more flexible. And I don't think that applies to everything, but I do believe that there are some forms of maturity that you just get because of what life does to you. And I'm not so sure. If there is any sort of um, magic bullet on what you can do to accelerate that process of maturity, it's kind of like getting your heart broken. Like You have to go through this. I mean, the best advice I can give to anybody where they're going through something that's just really tough is just don't blame yourself, don't be too hard on yourself, know this time doesn't last forever. But there isn't always a, a quote or an insight or a tip, in my opinion, that can sort of save you from the necessity of going through that transition. I, I heard an Eastern Orthodox priest once say that when one door closes, another door opens, but it's hell in the hallways. And the hells of transition are real. And sometimes we just have to brave the storm.
0: You know, I, I feel like there's a, you do just have to, there's some of those things you just had lived through. And I, and I don't want to sound like, you know, this is just overly dramatic. And I mean, the move that you, that you had, um, was, much harder and much more dramatic in many ways, but you and I are both believers in the fact that you can't really compare challenges or difficulties between people uh, in some sort of you know uh, numerical way where you can assign values to them. It's whatever the person going through it is feeling. It's subjective to them. And if it's a real, if it's the biggest challenge in their life at the moment, whatever the biggest challenge in someone's life is at the moment, it's going to feel like the biggest thing in their life no matter who you are. Um, if your biggest challenge is, you know, finding enough to eat, or if your biggest challenge is uh, dealing with uh, a tax bill you didn't expect or moving to a different house or whatever. like At the moment, dealing with a big challenge is dealing with a big challenge. So even though, I don't wanna sound like this is some massive dramatic thing, um, in the moment it is, especially for my son who's 11. And this is, this is heartbreaking for him. He truly believed that he was going to, when he told me this, I thought it was kind of funny, live in the house that we lived in until he was old enough to move out and and get his own house. Um, (laughs) You know, my wife and I didn't, we, we would have liked to stay there another maybe two or three years. um, And then, you know, hopefully move into something that has some, you know, some of the other things that we want. You know, everybody has a list of things they want in a place where they live. So, you know, for us, it was like abrupt. We didn't want to move now, um, but we, we did eventually. And we didn't want to make essentially a lateral or maybe even slightly downward in some ways move, which we had to, um, you know, so I mean, it's definitely hard. But I feel like in these in these changes, though, in these difficult times. It's it's similar to, like you said, getting your heart broken by a girl or, or by a guy um, or if someone dies in the family, there's there's there is something about it that feels wrong or like when your team loses in the championship, it never feels right. You never come around to being like that was the right thing. It was perfect. Some part of your innocence is lost. The first time you experience someone close to you dying, it changes who you are. And there's nothing, there's nothing that you can do during the grieving process that makes it easier. You just have to go through it and time just has to, to change you. Or the first time, as I told you, the first time on one of those mission trips, I became best friends with all these people and we had to say goodbye. I had never experienced that before. You know, I grew up in the same house my entire life. My, my mom still lives in the house that all, all of us kids were born in. Um, and I hadn't had friends move away really growing up. So that was a new experience for me. And some part of you some part, some part of the innocence of the joyful, wonderful world um, that at least, you know, I had or, or, you know, a lot of people I think have, it just goes away. Something just changes. Like when, 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 you know, my nephew died a few years ago and my father-in-law, I'm just a different person now. And there's some sense of loss that, that can't ever be recovered now, again, there are things about that that are redeeming as well. You become a different type of person who has a different type of intelligence for dealing with the world and reality, and, and you have new capabilities that only open up through that adversity, um, but yet there's also something, it's, it's like an undefeated team finally losing. Yes, you gain something by having gone through that but you've still lost some sort of this innocent joy that you had. That's just, it's like, things just aren't the same. Are you tracking with me there? Did, did you, I, I don't know if there's anything like more deep in this, but I, I've had that feeling many times that, especially after having a couple people uh, close to me die or, you know, saying goodbye, anything that's really painful. It's, it's like, yeah, I'm a different. And I guess in some ways, better person for having gone through it, but it's not like something was added to me something, there's a piece that's missing for me that, that can't be replaced as well. It's like with kids growing up too. Like my kids will never be babies again. There's something about that that just hurts. There's some part of it that's just painful and everything in the future is great and everything else. And I'm glad I had that time. Like every, all those things are true. I'm, I'm more mature because of the, you know, but it's also true that it, that it just feels kind of wrong at the same time. <laughs> you know, there's a lot. Oh, a-
1: a- absolutely, man. I, I just lost uh, an uncle about, oh man, it's now been about, uh, about a month ago. And, and, and this was a, was a super awesome guy. I mean, I, I consider him to be one of the greatest uh, champions of imagination in a, in a world of dream slayers and naysayers. And this was the kind of guy who just always affirmed the part of people that dreams. And he would always look out for me, always check up on me, always be uh, an adult who just was consistently un- unthreatened by my crazy wild dreams. And, and he's gone now. And it's one of those things where you know that you can move on. You know that you're going to be all right you know that you don't, you know, I'm not going to go sit in the corner and hang my head and say, I can't, I can't go on any further, but there is something that is missing that you're never going to have again. When I lost my best friend EJ to like a fluke, a, a fluke um, a, a like death that, that he, um, you know, he had a, a, a seizure when he was playing basketball at the age of 21. Um, there, there is a, a style of laughter that I will never get to hear myself do again because that guy is gone for me. There, there was a way he could make me laugh and it's just gone. I've never heard it. And I've accepted that I'm never going to hear it again. Th- th- there's a certain way that I know I can act that only he seemed to be able to invoke and that's gone. And that's a, that's a real loss. Loss is real. And and, and, I, and I think, um, you know, even though there isn't always something we can do, to accelerate the process of healing or getting through that, I do think there are things we can avoid doing that might convolute a process that nature would take care of on its own if we sort of left it alone and didn't interfere with unhealthy self-destructive ideas. And I I think one of those unhealthy self-destructive ideas is the notion that I shouldn't feel bad about X because X is the sort of thing that someone in a different situation wouldn't feel bad about. Yeah. You know, I, I remember ha- having a friend, you know, he was criticizing Paris Hilton and he said, oh, Paris Hilton is so naive and superficial and this and that and she doesn't realize what she has. If I had what she had, I would be doing X, Y, Z. And I was like, yeah, but you would be doing it with Paris Hilton's brain, you know? And, and, and that's not me hating on Paris Hilton's brain, but we, we, we often criticize the circumstance without understanding what it's like to have the heart, the mind, the background experiences, the relationships, all the intangibles of the person who's going through those circumstances. So you can you can never compare. And one thing I have found out over the years, the, the comparing the-
0: game is a, is such a losing game. To feel like, well, why why is this? I mean, it's, you know, that something as silly as moving a couple miles away to a different house. Why is this so sad and depressing for my wife and yeah. I, and my son? And you say, well, you know, other people move. My brother's moved a ton of times and he never seemed to be that sad about it. But then you just feel, <laughs> it's like, there's not there's nothing that you gain from that, you know, nothing that you gain
1: at all. And, and, you know, feeling guilty about how you feel has never been an effective strategy for making yourself feel better. N- now you just feel sad and guilty about the fact that <laughs> you're sad.
0: You, you know, know what? what's interesting is I am not a, I'm not a wallower, and I, and I don't like self pity and I don't like drama making things into a big deal. And one of the, one of the things I pride myself on that I've really relentlessly focused on building myself into the type of person who's forward looking and who realizes how to just step outside of, of moments and realize what matters and, and realize how small most things are and just sort of not care about them and not sit there and complain about them. I'm not, I'm not you know really a complainer and I think 90%, maybe more, of the things that make us stressed and anxious and whatever are, are stupid, are not worth stressing about, are completely silly. And if you just gain that perspective, you can basically discipline yourself or, or you know, philosophize your way to realizing that and truly being a happier, freer person. Most things are not worth getting sad about, feeling bad for yourself, getting depressed about, getting stressed about, anxious, worried, f- afraid. The vast majority of things that we feel those emotions about are, are just stupid and silly and not worth it. And so I'm so used to that. Whenever there's one that is that's like a real thing, this just really is hard and affecting me. I find that in those times I need to take the opposite approach. I instead of saying, "Look, let's compare it to what it could be. Let's put it in perspective. Okay, so what? Like you know, you're you." you know, you lost your job. Okay. But look at all the things you can do. Look what you can do next with it. This isn't that big of a deal in the big scheme of things. Like that usually works for those things where it really isn't that big of a deal, but there are some that just, that just hurt you, that cause pain, like something that's just really sad, a loss that you can't retrieve. Some of the things we mentioned before in those moments, I find my best sort of catharsis is to go the opposite way and just lay out every single thing that sucks, and in detail, why every part of it is hard. Every single thing that we'll never have back from that house that we lived in, and all the experiences that we lived through there, and how amazing it was that, you know, um, oh, we, that was the first house that we ever liked. I mean, truly, my wife and I had been in a ton of crappy houses and apartments from the time we got married. We got married so young uh, and so poor that we kept you know, switching from, I mean, we had some ridiculous houses. I could, I could go on about the, just the absurdity of, of the junkiness and some of the stuff we went through. And when we made this big dramatic move to South Carolina, it was a defining moment in our life. And that house was the first house we ever liked. It was the first home that we ever had as a family. My daughter was born there, literally in the house. Praxis was born there, literally in the house. Um, <laughs> so many things. I mean, all my, you know, all of my kids basically grew up there for this five years. This is this has been the most amazing five years of our life. It's just we didn't realize how much. I actually started crying as I was walking through the house doing a final cleanup before we you know after we moved all of our stuff. And and that was just, it just totally overwhelmed me and hit me by surprise. Um, so I find, okay, now I'm feeling sad and I'm almost embarrassed by how sad I am. And I know that it's already hard on on NL and on my wife. And so I don't want to like make it worse by being sad and down, but I was, and I was like, just basically venting to my wife, all the things I'm going to miss and how unfortunate it was. It just, it just didn't feel right. It felt like we were supposed to stay there another two years. It felt like we just had a couple more years there and it wasn't ready to make the transition. And this isn't the house we want to move into, blah, blah, blah. So I'm like venting it all. And then, and then my wife's like, you can't be all upset and down because I, it makes me scared. Like you're always the one who's like, (laughs) nothing. And so it's weird, but like that's what I need to do. I need to be like, it completely sucks. We'll never get it back. Just to let it all out, and then I can move forward. But I need to like let myself feel it fully, you know.
1: Oh man, I'm with you 100. So in in the book we co-wrote together, Freedom Without Permission, I I talk about emotional versatility, and I contrast that with happiness and how. When, when we talk about things like, you know, living a healthy life, finding fulfillment, we tend to idolize the quote unquote positive emotional states and we treat feeling good as if it's the end all be all. And, and I preach a philosophy of emer- emotional versatility where you learn how to develop a healthy relationship with all the various moods you can be in, understanding that moods move in cycles and we don't always control them. Moods are like the weather. We're not always in direct control of how it's going to be, but we do have some sort of freedom with regards to how we navigate it, how we plan around it and so forth. And you can just as you can have a good time in any kind of weather, you can have a good time in any kind of mood as long as you're willing to adopt a flexible notion of what it means to have a good time. So one of the concepts I discuss in the book is what I call psychological choreography. And I basically define that as, you know, the art of learning how to dance with the energy of whatever mood you happen to be in. And I compare happiness or, you know, like positive emotions like joy and exuberance. I compare that to the kind of music that they play at wedding receptions. It's easy music to dance to. Everybody knows what to do when you turn that music on. Even your uncle who can't dance can get up and move about to Pharrell's happy in a way that, you know, where anything works. That's what happiness is like. When you feel good, you never pick up the phone and call up a friend and say, oh, man, I'm feeling so much joy. What do I do with all this goodness I feel? No, <laughs> you, you you know what to do with it because happiness is the kind of music that's easy to dance to. But when you feel things like sadness, when you feel nostalgia, when you feel jealousy, when you feel anger, frustration, the, these are, are, are emotional states that are kind of like it's sort of like the DJ turns off, you know, the pop music. And we're no longer listening to, you know, please don't stop the music. Please don't stop the music. Like Like. that turns off. And now the DJ puts on like some ballet, you know, or some polka. And now everyone's standing around like, okay, what am I supposed to do with this? Unless you're at a Polish
0: wedding, then they all know what to do with the polka.
1: (laughs) Yeah, man. You know, so I, I think it's really about stepping back and saying, okay, look, this isn't a bad emotion for me to feel, even if it feels unpleasant. And there is a way that I can dance with this feeling.
0: What's what's the emotion that I need to be, that I need to to engage to deal with this particular circumstance? Uh, I think that's a really powerful way to look at it, to look at your emotions as tools that are appropriate in appropriate settings. Instead of just always focusing on always be happy, never be afraid, no, like fear and sadness are appropriate emotions. You need to learn to master the application of them for the appropriate context to get your desired ends. Oh, uh,
1: dude, think about all the great music that has been written in direct response to someone getting their heart broken. That, that's the perfect example. I, of... I tell
0: Heather all the time that when I, when I was in my teens, I wrote music yeah. all the time and I can't I hardly write anymore. It's very hard. I tell yeah, her yeah. she needs to leave me for like a couple of weeks and then I'll just write a ton of songs and then she'll come back and be like, it was all a joke. How'd, how'd the music writing go? Cause I need that. I need that angst over, you know, I, I have too much of a stable, happy, uh, marriage.
1: <laughs> I love it, man. My wife just left town for the week and, uh, I, I sometimes make bulletproof coffee for us both in the morning. So I told her I'm, I'm at home writing a song called Bulletproof for One.
0: No. <laughs> that's, that's like a blues song. Yeah, it, dude. There's too many dirty <laughs> dishes in the sink. That's a good one. Um.
1: <laughs> but, but yeah, man. I mean, the, the whole point is you, you can't treat your emotions like something to be overcome. You have to treat all of those emotions as if they're valuable forms of energy that you can learn how to work with. But my, my last point on this I I, I compare feelings to friends. All of your friends aren't the same, but they're all good for you. You've got some friends that can make you laugh anytime. And when you hang out with them, you feel really awesome. But you have some friends who aren't really good at making you feel good. That's not the function they serve. But they are the kind of people who will call you on your BS. They will challenge you and tell you when you're wrong. You know what I mean? They never stroke your ego, but you know they're good for you. In a lot of ways, I look at negative feelings as, as those kinds of friends. They're not there to make you feel good, but if you can learn how to appreciate them for what they are, not treat them like an enemy that has to be overcome, but figure out how you can collaborate with them, um, then, then you'll find a more healthy relationship. I feel like
0: we're walking through the movie inside out. Have you seen that movie? Yes. Yes. So yes. Good. I actually enjoyed that. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Uh, this is totally unrelated, but when <laughs> we were talking about blues songs, too many dirty dishes, bulletproof for one. I just yeah. had this flash and it connects to your uncle Bruce. Uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> Heather and I, when we were engaged, we went to Chicago for uh, a day and we went to this, uh, I think it was like the Isaac Hayes restaurant or something. It was like some sort of blues club or something. And, um, And there was this band performing and the woman who was singing this blues band, the woman who was singing was like, all right, this number right here goes out to this (laughs) couple up here in the front because y'all so love it, dovey, you make me want to puke. And the the song was meet me with your black drawers on. (laughs) And and she starts singing it and like pointing us the whole time. So I tell TK this story. And, like, I don't know. We laugh
1: about it like crazy.
0: Yeah, we laugh about it. And then later, TK calls me and says, This is before Voxer existed, so we had to call. He calls me, I don't know, it was like a month or two later. And you're like, dude, I know the woman who was singing that song to you. That's my Aunt Mui. And I was like,
1: (laughs) What are you talking about? (laughs) True story. Dude, it was so awesome because. We laugh like, ah, ha, ha, who, who would sing a song like that? And we're, we're making fun of the experience and everything. And so I'm at my dad's church when I go back to visit Chicago, maybe like a month or two after we have that conversation. And I'm telling a couple of the guys this story. I'm like, oh, I this story out. So my boy was was here in Chicago and they went to this. And my cousin Morrow goes, wait. That's Aunt Mui's song, dude. He was like, yeah, she performs at that place.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely amazing. Um, Too awesome. So one thing, I don't want to beat a dead horse about this house, but but I want to get into just a couple things that I've been thinking about, why this new house feels so different from the old house and what's made it difficult. And it's gotten me thinking about our sense of space and our relationship to space and the patterns of our life in relation to space, which is absolutely, I'm going to start rereading Christopher Alexander again. Um, And I know you and I have talked about Christopher Alexander, but amazing work, a timeless way of building a pattern language. He's an architect who sort of extrapolated his insights about architecture into a a whole philosophy of life. I mean, it truly is sweeping, but it's absolutely amazing. A lot of insights about spontaneous order in a very Hayekian sort of way. Um, A lot of similarity to some Jane Jacobs stuff about, you know, uh, or the organic nature that cities can emerge and how it's sort of really crappy when you try to, you know, lay down prefabricated cities and, and neighborhoods and things like that. It sort of kills the life in them. But I've been thinking a lot about this, because I have never been so conscious of space and light and the way that they affect us and the way that we interact with them since this move. So just a brief, uh, you know, description. The house that we moved from, it is in a typical suburban setting, like you know suburbs. Most of these subdivisions are very similar, except the one difference was all the houses are always like lined up and they're all basically the same distance back from the road, which I think is absurd. I think they should just stagger them. It would just make so much difference. But anyway, this one was back a little further than the houses on either side of it. It was angled slightly because it faced a pond in the back and it was on like the corner, the corner of this pond. And so the way that it was angled, you know, you sort of, you sort of pulled into the driveway and walked up to the house through kind of a narrow area, like the way that it was Like the 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 houses next to it in the yard, they all sort of filter down like from wide to narrow, getting you to walk into the door. So it sort of was very natural when you were standing in front of the house, you felt drawn to walk into the door, into sort of the shade and the step that transition you inside. So it's going from like a wide uh, space to a narrow space that that leads to the door, and then you go in the house. And it immediately does the opposite effect. You go through the front entryway and the back of the house is right there. And it has windows on all the sides that fan out, like in the backyard, broadens out almost like a funnel from narrow to wide uh, to this pond. And then the pond widens out on both sides as well. And because the house is set back, you can't see the houses on either side when you step out. You just see the pond and the trees behind it. So you're funneled in to, you know, this, this nice transition from brightness to shade to the door, uh, and the, the front porch and the door. And then you go in the house and immediately you step through the little hallway and you're funneled back out to the light. That's always on the back of the house with the sun going you know, at all times of the day. It's on one side of the other of the house and, and it's always coming through one of the windows. And so you sort of, Enter in, in a very natural way, you're channeled, humans are phototropic, so we're drawn to light, but you're sort of channeled into the comfort and safety of the entrance, and then immediately drawn outward towards the back, looking out and up to trees and pond, and it just has this effect, and light is coming in the house at all times of the day because of the way the windows are. The new house is larger and has a more regal looking front entrance, but it's exactly the same distance back from the road as all the houses lined up with it. And so it's like very cookie cutter and there's no windows on either side of the house because other houses are, you know, like in most neighborhoods, not that far away on either side. And so no one wants to be looking out at the siding of the other person. And so you enter in the front door, which is not very inviting. It's just sort of too stark to to sort of step up into it and you come in and the house is very cavernous and cave-like because there's no windows on the sides and there's windows only on the back and the back just faces back to a flat square backyard with with a fence and trees um at the end of it at the back of it and there's no sort of ponder open sky space and there's no there's only windows on the back end so you have wind you know you have light coming through the front and the back and nothing on either side and so it's this sort of tunnel this cave-like thing and you kind of feel like you're just you're just like stepping into a slot. It's like parking in a parking garage or something. You're just like pulling your person into this Mm. little slot and like you go from the Mm. front straight to the back. And there's nothing about it that invites you to sort of open up. It doesn't open to anything and it doesn't draw you comfortably into it. And I never would have thought of all this stuff if I hadn't ever read a couple of years ago this work by Christopher Alexander talking about how spaces can be more or less alive. And he shows all these pictures. And at first it's kind of like, okay, this is just really subjective. Like this building in Greece feels more alive than this building in Houston or whatever. And then you're, you're like, what is it about it though? Because you know he'll say which one feels more alive and show you these pictures. And it's just instant, you know, or even which windowsill feels more alive, which you know street, you know it in your gut. But then you're like, well, it's just some sort of feeling. But then he starts to break down what those elements are. At first you think, oh, well, it's just maybe age because this one's all quaint and old, so it feels more. But it's not because he'll, he'll give you all different examples. And basically what he comes to is to, to be very crude in summarizing it because it's massive volumes of work that are amazing. I can't recommend it enough. They're unfortunately really expensive because they're out of print. But um, where it's the how well-built environments um, align with the natural patterns of human behavior and life. So, so humans have these patterns of the way that they interact with each other, the way they interact with nature and built environments have to ha- harmoniously work with those. So he gives this really simple example in one part, and I'm going to be f- forgetting part of it, but because humans are naturally drawn to light and because humans they want sort of the safety of some place to um sit and rest having a chair positioned in such a way that's near a window uh in a room is much more alive than having let's say a chair that's back is to the window and you're looking away because you're drawn you while you're talking or hmm. thinking you want to be looking towards light and i find myself doing this all the time when i'm on the phone I always end up standing by a window looking out without consciously thinking about it, but you're drawn Mm -hmm. towards it, but yet you want to sort of sit and recline. And so you have this tension, you have a tension where these two patterns are um, at cross purposes or when humans step from inside safety and a little bit of shade into light and open expanse, it's, there's this desire to transition and it's very, if you just have like a back door that opens to a broadly sunshine lit patio with no transition space, you feel too exposed. It doesn't draw you out. You don't naturally want to go out there. Whereas if you have like a little covering and maybe there's like some lattice work with uh, you know, sort of a partially covered patio and then a fully open patio, you have this transition from inside to outside that draws you into it. Anyway, so... Mm. I have been more aware of that than ever, and it's just so clear that most construction, most houses, especially in these suburban um, settings, you know they just aren't built with any thought to natural human patterns and what patterns are sort of in alignment with the way people live their life. So these built environments are not like as alive often. And if they are, it's kind of by accident. And you, and you see a great example of this on say a college campus where they'll, they'll build some new area and they will plan an artistic and efficient, uh, series of walking paths and they'll pave them and put them there. But the paths don't align with people's natural patterns. Maybe the two most popular buildings to walk between are at a weird angle. And so you'll see all these footpaths that are that are off of the paved road that people naturally, or you know, you often see this at like a mall where there's like you know in between the the myrtle or the hedges there's like a footpath because people always walk that way. It's just more natural with their patterns and the the people who designed it have this aesthetic in mind of what they want it to look like from a helicopter. But living on the ground, interacting with that built environment is a very different thing. Um, so anyway, I've just been really aware of that and it and I've never had an experience so much where this house it just I, my relationship to light is so different. It's kind of like, there's a lot of rooms in the house that feel sad for large portions of the day because the, the shadows are not, they're kind of dark. They don't have access to light or the shadows are weird. It's very strange. And again, mm. this is a very nice house and we're going to be fine here. We're, we're going to have a two year lease. The neighborhood's nice. It has a pool and a basketball court and everything like that. I want to get overly dramatic, but it's just really made me more aware on a very visceral level of some of the things, especially from the work of, of Christopher Alexander. Now, TK, have you ever experienced that kind of awareness of the spaces you're in and how they affect you?
1: Oh, I experience it all the time. And I, I think uh, a critical part of being a creative and productive person is learning how to, how to exploit that knowledge to your advantage. So growing up, a cliche that I heard people say a lot was, you can never run away from your problems just because you change geographical location, doesn't mean you've changed your life. No, ma- no matter where you go, you'll still be you.
0: And this was usually sad to someone who- But what if my no- problem is the dog next door? I literally <laughs> right. can run away from it. <laughs> right, right.
1: And, and even then they probably get you with something like, yeah, but Isaac, the real problem isn't the dog, it's your mental relationship to the idea of having to live with the dog. And you'll still have that problem in your head when you move away. And, and I've always thought this was funny because yeah there there definitely is a mental attitudinal side to coping with problems and transcending them and so forth but I've always found in my experience and and, and I was later to you know begin studying things like this uh, that movement facilitates change like different places can help open up new spaces in your awareness they can help you connect with different parts of yourself self, that aren't as easily connected with in other places. And I, I think there's a sort of dualistic fallacy that goes on when we talk about anything having to do with like success or, or happiness or creative efficacy. We sort of treat it like it's all a matter of willpower. And you know, your the way you approach creativity is better off if you don't depend in any way on your environment. And and what's ironic about this to me is that there are things we feel comfortable doing this with, but there are other things we would never do this with. So let's take food, for instance. No one would ever say, you know, as an artist or an entrepreneur, I like the idea of being able to create and build without relying on food for energy. I don't like having to depend on ingesting external substances and having my body to you know convert them into nutrition we don't say silly stuff like that we're we're totally accepting of the fact that we live in symbiotic relationship with food we're totally accepting of the fact that we are totally reliant on consuming something outside of our bodies in order to get the fuel that we need to get through a day however when it's suggested to us that If you want to generate creative ideas or if you want to feel inspired or if you want to feel more at peace or if you want to solve a problem, that it might benefit you to do something like take a walk or move into a different room or perhaps adjust your posture or sit down instead of stand up or vice versa. Or maybe see if you can make arrangements to get away for a couple of days, whatever it may be. We sort of look at that as like, oh, that's something that only weak people do. That's only something done by people that lack willpower, and I, I think I think it's important for us to appreciate that we're ecological beings, man. We are we are a part of nature. We do not merely stand above it as its lord and master, but we are a part of it. And just as the elements of nature affect one another, so they affect our, ourselves. This is not this is not you know I, I've always been um, open to ideas that are mystical or religious or spiritual. But I actually find it quite funny that this sort of idea, the notion that the um, the architectural structures that we inhabit affect, you know, um, the way we think they affect our state of consciousness. I've always found it funny that we sort of look at this as if it's, you know, a a new age sort of spiritual thing. And, And I actually think this notion that we're affected by these things lends itself perhaps more readily to a materialistic understanding because if nature is all the same in the sense that we're all these various complex arrangements of atoms and molecules, then it would make perfect sense if, you know, the atoms and molecules in one part of the room are affected by the way in which atoms and molecules in another part of the room are arranged. So, I don't think one has to resort to feng shui or a new age philosophy to see that this is real, and I think when you dismiss it as something that only weak people care about, you rob yourself as an opportunity to figure out how to use tools that can help you facilitate change in ways that just can't be done by the mere exertion of willpower. You know what yeah.
0: I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. It, it's interesting if you really, <clears throat> you know, if you really want to take it take it seriously. Um, and I love your analogy to nutrition because I think that that kind of puts it in the really the appropriate context. I actually think it, it, it might be the case. And again, I never want to imply like I'm you're just a victim of your circumstance and you can never overcome it. I, I don't mean that at all in just the same way where if I said you have the power to change your life and get into good shape and be happier, uh, I'm not, or, or, or rather, I'm sorry, you, you know, you um, whatever, if you live in a place where you don't have access to certain kinds of food um, acknowledging that that is going to cause certain challenges for your health is not the same as saying you're powerless or, 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 you know, you have no ability to overcome your circumstance. So I don't mean that at all, but sense of space, I think there are actually some spaces where it is nearly impossible to have certain kinds of thoughts or, or come up with certain kinds of ideas, certain spaces, the way they're constructed, you just are, not capable of behaving in certain ways or doing certain things in that space. And in other spaces, you're almost incapable of resisting certain types of behavior. So back to the health analogy, this doesn't take away from your free will and your ability to master yourself, to realize that in certain conditions nutritionally, there are certain things you just can't do. If you haven't eaten for 46 hours, you can't climb a mountain Almost never. I mean, there, I mean, there can be these crazy exceptions, but for the most part, if if you are you know hungry incredibly hungry you're not going to be able to be incredibly nuanced and patient with your kids that's just a a, that's an environment that you're putting yourself in where that type of behavior that type of mindset and outlook even if you're capable of doing it it requires so much work and focus being patient when you're hungry or you know people who get hangry my my wife and my son both get really when they're hungry they get start to get edgy with people given that environment (laughs) that that the physical reality of that hunger There are certain things they're just not going to be likely to do. They're they're almost incapable, not entirely incapable, but it's very hard. And likewise, if you're really full, it's almost impossible to not do certain things. Or if you've had a certain amount of alcohol, it's almost impossible not to talk too much if you're me, right? And I I think the physical environment we live in has similar effects. There are certain types of settings where certain kinds of thoughts just aren't going to occur to you. In those settings, you know, maybe you're in a a beautiful regal cathedral. The types of thoughts that you have are affected and and in some degree limited by the type of space you're in, just like the type of, of nutrition you're taking in. I think that's a powerful realization. And I don't think it's disempowering. I think it's empowering. It lets you realize how much you have the ability to, you know, the more you're aware of it, the more you can sort of work with that and try to give yourself certain spaces. I mean, I can tell you the pond in in the backyard of the house that we were in before, that pond produced so many ideas and essays and things that I did sitting at a particular bench overlooking that pond. It just enabled me to access parts of my mind that I can't access in other places, or at least not nearly as easily. And I think that's a powerful thing to be aware of.
1: Oh, absolutely. And before anybody says all oh, the invisibility of the privilege to the privilege, you guys just live by the ocean and you can take a walk to the water whenever you want. Like, I mean, so first of all, I don't, you know, have an oceanfront property, although I wouldn't apologize if I had one. No, I wouldn't apologize one bit, baby. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, um, the, the existence of an exception doesn't doesn't disprove the value of an idea because the question isn't what can I get away with? The question is, how can I live optimally? And when you have choices, you don't always have the full range of options that you want. But when you have choices, I I think it is a very intelligent and creative thing to uh, figure out how you can use geography to your advantage. For me, there are certain spaces in thought that are just much easier for me to get into if I take a walk. And, um, or if I'm by the water or, or if, if it's, if it's nighttime and I'm alone, there are certain spaces in thought I can get to, but I'm not always afforded that luxury. And when I don't have that luxury, I just, you know, I, I just have to make the best with what I can, but that doesn't mean both circumstances are equal.
0: Yeah. You know, um, and I think it helps to, and we talk about this in other contexts too, to approach this in sort of an amoral sense just like with nutrition, it's not necessarily that you have to believe kale is morally, you know, superior to peanut butter, uh, to understand that given certain conditions, you may get the results you want better with kale than peanut butter because of the way that your physiology works to, to be, to sort of treat it as morally neutral, I think lets you see the the truth more clearly. Um, and this really came out in, in Christopher Alexander's work. I remember actually, I just pulled up this, uh, I think I only blogged about his book like one time. It's one of those things that like really is so heavy and rich and I don't, I almost don't know what to say about it. Like it's still working on me. I'm still absorbing insights from, from it. And I want to go read it again. But one of the things, um, I just pulled up this old post cause I remembered when I first read it and this quote in here and he's, and, and he's talking about these patterns in the world and something that is more or less living it's not about being more or less morally good it's it's not about what patterns we wish existed i guess i'll put it that way which is the same for like social engineers you know we we wish human beings bought more of this instead of that so let's design systems policies institutions whatever towards the kind of per- people we wish people were, or the kind of behavior we wish they had. I mean, it's like traffic lights and all these other things that are so often designed with how they wish people behaved instead of how they actually behave, just taking that for a given and working with it. Alexander says, I'm going to, I'm going to read this a little bit lengthy quote, but, but a pattern, which is real. This is from uh, the timeless way of building, but a pattern, which is real makes no judgments about the legitimacy of the forces in the situation by seeming to be unethical. By making no judgments about individual opinions or goals or values, the pattern rises to another level of morality. The result is to allow things to be alive, and this is a higher good than the victory of any one artificial system of values. The attempt to have a victory for a one-sided view of the world cannot work anyway, even for the people who seem to win their point of view. The forces which are ignored do not go away just because they are ignored. They lurk, frustrated, underground. Sooner or later, they erupt in violence, and the system which seems to win is then exposed to far more catastrophic dangers. The only way a pattern can actually help to make a situation genuinely more alive is by recognizing all the forces which actually exist, and then finding a world in which these forces can slide past each other. Then it becomes a piece of nature. And he's talking about architecture here, but how powerful is that? This idea that, you know, by not being ethical and picking a side and trying to, by rising above that, you you sort of achieve a higher level of morality by saying, how can we make this situation the most harmonious, the most alive by just recognizing the forces that already exist? I mean, this is workplace politics. Instead of wishing the secretary wasn't grumpy every morning, recognize the forces that exist and work along with it. You know, do get her a cup of coffee on Mondays because it will help things slide past each other in this way to become, you know, something better, something more, more, uh, a piece of nature, as Alexander says. I mean, even, even recognizing your own emotional states, not wishing that you were this way, just acknowledging all the forces at play. They are what they are. Now, how can we work with this? And I I find it just a really powerful, um, observation.
1: That that observation, It, it, there's something that I refer to as the, I shouldn't have to fallacy. Oh. And the the I shouldn't have to fallacy is when you fail to do something that would clearly work, but you refuse to do it simply because in an ideal scenario you wouldn't have to do it. So <laughs> it's like what I, my wife know,
0: says. <laughs> why, why won't you do the dishes after dinner? I say I'm happy to. I just forget. Just tell me. I shouldn't have to tell you. I'm like I <laughs> know, but you <could. laughs> I don't.
1: It, it's so awesome, man. But we do it
0: all the time. I mean, I, I shouldn't
1: have to drive defensively. I shouldn't have to compensate for the idiot that's you know talking on a cell phone or or texting while he's driving and not paying attention to the road i shouldn't have to but you know what if i don't i'm probably going to get hurt i'm probably going to die and 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 sometimes like thinking in terms of the works doesn't work dichotomy not just the right versus wrong dichotomy um you, you can protect yourself from that fallacy and you can be a lot more effective because it's not about what you shouldn't have to do; it's about what you can do to make your life as awesome as possible.
0: All right, so I want to move on from from the house and all this stuff. Uh, thanks for for letting me have this long-winded uh, <laughs> observation and analysis. Um, as,
1: long, as long as we can uh, title this episode "In the House," you know, like Isaac is in the house. <laughs> <laughs> Something with
0: Morehouse. Morehouse. Uh, less house is more. I don't know. I don't know.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't. I don't know if I'll be able to come up with something. Okay, so in the last you know ten minutes or so here, I want to hit on a couple things on the big giant list of things we have to talk about, and maybe we can do these somewhat quickly. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, for I guess let, for these four things. Let's see if we can get to all four of them. Um, when you get overwhelmed by uh, life optimization, self help stuff, and you don't know what to do, uh, pretending things are true. And even if they may not be, or if it does, you don't care if they are, uh, what's the potential value there or when have you done that, uh, bandwagons, good, bad, and then failure. Is it fetishized too much? So, uh, let's go from the top. So, so let me give you the context on this one. So my buddy, Jeff Till, who's got a great podcast, 500 years and a website, 500 years.org. He was just saying, yeah, so I've been listening to Tim Ferriss podcast. You know, I've been reading all these different books, uh, some of the books that we've talked about, The Last Safe Investment, The Education of Millionaires. And he said, at some point, I feel like it almost makes it harder. It becomes so confusing. You're listening to Ferriss and Altucher and, of course, Isaac and TK, reading all these books and articles, you know. What, so what are you supposed to do? Everybody has a different take, different advice, how to optimize your life, how to do this, how to do this. If you take in all the noise of all of these ideas about improvements and all these things, don't you just get overwhelmed? And you know, you sort of, you sort of second guess everything. Like you're about to send in a resume for a job. And then you're like, wait a minute, I read somewhere not to send a resume, but to do this instead. But then I read somewhere else to do this. But then I remember this other guy talking about this. Oh my gosh, what do I do? How do I be the best version of myself? There's just so much advice out there. Um, What's your take on that sort of paralysis because of overload on information and and the worry of that happening?
1: So I think a lot of this has to do with people approaching ideas as if they're their commitments or as if they're dogmas or, or religions that that have to be followed, that have to be believed. So if, if Peter Till says one thing about monopoly and another writer says a different thing and they contradict, it's like, oh, my gosh, who's right? Which one do I believe I got to take a side? And I think it's important to also look at ideas as conceptual tools. And every tool has has a context where it works and every tool has a context where it's irrelevant. You take a hammer, for instance, a hammer is really great for achieving certain things, but it's also pretty useless when I'm making eggs in the morning, right? So um, ideas in a similar way, instead of getting caught up on like who's right, I I tend to approach things by saying, all right, in what way is this right? Or how can I get value out of this idea? You know, what's the context? Because there is a context that makes every idea stupid, you know, and ineffective. And there's a context that makes every idea awesome. So I, I, I don't, I typically don't get caught up in that sort of problem. I mean, you and I talk about taking it personally, don't take it, per, don't take it personally. This, this is an example that we've discussed a lot where you, you actually have, some self-help writers. I, I think in the book Four Agreements, he, this might be like the second or third agreement, where he says, don't take anything personally. And he talks about how when people you know, are mean-spirited or, or they take a bad day out on you, don't take it personally. And, and it's a wonderful bit of advice that has added a lot of value to my life and other people's lives. And yet, I also find Great value. And sometimes taking it personally, I think about Sidney Poitier's story where, you know, he was working as a dishwasher and he went to audition for a play just because he saw a classified ad, you know, where he could make money and he thought acting doesn't sound too hard. And he did so horrible at his audition. The guy said to him, why don't you get out of here and go be a dishwasher or something? And Sidney Poitier said, oh, my gosh, how did he know? You know, how did the guy know that that's what I did? And and he took it personally because he took it as this guy is saying all Sydney Portier can do is be a dishwasher. I'm going to prove to this guy that there's more to Sydney than washing dishes and taking it personally caused him to rise above something. So who's right? You don't need to take a side. Both of the ideas are dangerous and both of the ideas are helpful depending on the attitude with which you use them and depending on the context Mm -hmm. within which you use them. So so take in everything. And think critically and creatively about how you apply it. Cause they all work and they'll all ruin your life. Hey, every idea can ruin your life.
0: Every, every idea is like Aslan. It's dangerous, but it's good. Um, you know, my, my, my response when I was thinking about this, when, when Jeff was saying, you know, at what point is it just become like this overload and it actually sets you back. It makes it harder to know what to do. I thought, you know, My notion of education, of learning, is fundamentally different from everything that we're accustomed to, which is find the right answer. That's the typical approach to education. Education is about knowing things, specific concrete things, knowing correct answers. Not becoming something, not knowing how to do something or who you are, but knowing what, knowing why. Why does this happen? Give me the right answer. What happened on this date? Give me the right answer. And I think if you approach it that way, you're going to be completely overwhelmed. You're going to hear Tim Ferriss say one thing, and then you're going to read this book by you know this guy over here, and then you're going to listen to this podcast, and you're going to read this, and you're going to be like, ah, I don't know, You know, the, the five things you should never do in your career, the three things you didn't know you weren't supposed to do in your career. I'm overwhelmed. That's because you're looking for the right answer. Education and learning, in my mind, is not about getting it right. It's about Transformation fundamentally learning is transforming who you are. The, the actual physical process of what happens to your brain when you learn is you are creating new pathways, new connections. You are altering the physiology of your body by, you know, these synapses firing in new ways. And I, I'm not an expert on brain chemistry, but, but <laughs> just, there's enough truth in there to, to, to go with me. It's transforming, literally and figuratively transforming, who you are. Be transformed by it. So when I listen to Mark Andreessen recently on the Tim Ferriss podcast, and he says, I'm not one of these guys that gets up at seven every morning. I get up as late as I can. I drink caffeine for 10 hours a day and then alcohol for four hours a day. And then I hear another guy say, I don't touch caffeine or alcohol. I get up at five every morning and start my day with an ice cold shower. I do all these things. I never feel like, ah, which one is right? Which one am I supposed to do? And I also don't feel like, ah, it's all a bunch of crap. Everybody says something different. I feel like, no, listening to these people tell their stories and explain what they have arrived at and how they've arrived at it, it's not right or wrong. It's just transforming who I am. It's transforming my paradigms, my lenses, the way I see the world. It's making me the type of person. So make it really concrete get back to this idea of sending a job resume, you know, Oh, what do I do? Do I send a resume? Should I make it colorful? Should I do this? Should I do a website instead? I've heard people say, don't do this. I've heard them say this. None of those, if you're looking for right answers, you're not going to find them going to all these places. Instead, if you have been transformed by all this content you're consuming, you'll know in the moment the right thing for you because you will be the kind of person who has cultivated a good sense of your own art, with some knowledge of the science of it, you know you know that certain kinds of emails get open more than others because you've picked that up somewhere, but you really know you've transformed into the kind of person who knows when that knowledge is applicable and when it's not because of who you've become. So if you see it as transformative, I think the whole stress goes away and you don't listen for answers. you listen to change.
1: A- absolutely. And, and I would add to that you can look at philosophy as a way that's not incompatible with looking at it as a pursuit of truth, but it's also a way of just playing around with different ways of seeing things for the fun of having a new perspective, you know, without feeling the need to be committed to it. And, And like you said, that stuff comes back to you. It's like watching a movie. When I sit down and watch a movie, I don't say today I'm going to learn a lesson from this film that will inspire me to create more freedom in my everyday life. No, I'm just sitting down for the experience of enjoying something. I have a general set of expectations, but I'm just sitting back and I'm going to enjoy what this movie's all about. And every time I do that, it it gives me illustrations and ideas and ways of seeing things that are useful for life. But I do think there is such a thing as trying too hard to, to get the right answer, to not make a mistake, to make sure you don't misapply an idea. And yeah, that's when you get yourself into trouble. But lighten up, have fun and study ideas because... You enjoy seeing things in a different way and okay. use all the ideas.
0: Okay. So, t- t- speaking of being non committal, uh, philosophically exploring things and not feeling the pressure to decide whether it's actually true, um, sometimes I act as if things are true, even if they're unproven or even if I'm highly suspicious that they are untrue, because of what I think I can gain by playing around or taking a period of time where I basically act as if something is true or, or mentally say, okay, let's say that this is true. What would that mean? What would be the implication? So I want to give an example. I'll give one of them. You want one. What are some of the ideas that you have pretended to be true? Um, and for the value that they bring to you, uh, and maybe why? So I'll start with one. Mm-hmm. So I love to play around and pretend that absolute, like complete, Totally radical to the extreme, free will exists. I'm, I'm a big fan of free will. That's what got me into philosophy and in, in the first place, and theology, and and into you know political freedom and all this stuff back in the day. I love talking about it and, and playing around with concepts of free will, but taking it to the absolute extreme. Not only am I free to act in this moment or to say the words that I'm saying here or not. Not only am I free to get another job if I want a different job, change my income if I want to, sort of the very practical things, but I actually have choice. Like play, playing around again, assuming that it's true. I'm not saying that it is, or that it could even be proven, or you know maybe it wouldn't even matter. Maybe it's absurd, but I have found it really fun to play as if every single thing in my life was chosen by me. Like I I did choose to be born to the parents that I was born to. I did choose to be six, okay, five eleven and three quarters and skinny, and wish that I. Was taller and stronger so that I'd be better at basketball. I did choose this particular set of circumstances. I chose to manifest this sort of reality, like to play as if you, every single thing in your life was actually a choice and it was almost some game you set up for yourself. There's something I find really fun and actually empowering about playing along with this because it makes me start to say, Oh man, you know, I just broke my ankle right before I have to go do X, Y, and Z. This is horrible. This is inconvenient. This happened to me. Wait, wait. No, no, no. I chose this somehow for some reason. I wonder why that was. I wonder what kind of game I'm trying to play with myself. I wonder if this is necessary for me to get to the next level to become who I need to become. I wonder, okay, okay, let's see. Let's see if we can figure this out. Playing along with this concept of complete radical free will might make me sound like an egocentric psychopath or something. It is actually (laughs) a blast and I love playing around with it, both philosophically and practically. So what's an idea that you have pretended to be true uh, for the value that it brings?
1: That there is a dark force that uses my negative energy as fuel, and whenever it can get me to give in to a belief in my own powerlessness, it becomes stronger and more capable of doing evil in the world. Um, whenever I am in a position where I'm tempted, and I don't, I don't, I, I'm not not in the sense of just like feeling sad or feeling upset, but I'm tempted to act in a way that's inconsistent with my values, inconsistent with what I know is right. I imagine myself in like a Hunger Games type scenario where someone is watching me on a screen and they're sort of giggling with a sinister laugh and they're just waiting for me to break because they know if I do the wrong thing, you know, the revolution is undermined and they win and, and evil prevails. And in those moments where I am the most vulnerable, where life is the crappiest, I imagine that I'm watched by this invisible audience, and I smile at that audience, and I say, man, this is one of the best days I ever had. What can I do to move the world forward? You know, and I, I refuse to let those invisible entities see me bleed, you know, and I imagine myself just giving them the middle finger, you know, as they're just like, you know, frustrated and, and confused. Wait, why is he not breaking? Why is he not giving up? I can't tell you how many bad times, you know, that that image has, has gotten me through. But Uh, now the question is, do I, am I, am I really looking at that as a fiction or do I believe it?
0: (laughs) (laughs) No one will ever know. Well, the best part is, um, apparently I don't care about the answer because I chose to manifest you as a friend and have you say what you just said. And it's all, it's all (laughs) just part of my, my creation. Um, (laughs) this is the episode where. We go full nutter and nobody uh, takes us seriously anymore, if they ever did, all four of our listeners. Um, uh, you know, hey, hey, man, but
1: you know, on, on this topic, there's an article I recommend people read. It was, um, It's a Scientific American article, and uh, it's called In Defense of Metaphors in Science Writing. And he talks about how what you're doing here is actually, in a sense, scientific, because you can't test the hypotheses until you make the claim and say, this is how reality is. And then you look For evidence to confirm it. But you have to start by treating the hypothesis as if it's true and saying, all right, if it were true, then what? And and let's go act as if it's true and let's see what happens. And the more that works, the hypothesis becomes more and more confirmed. But if you encounter evidence that contradicts it or if it doesn't work for you, then you toss it out. Additionally, scientific theories are not entirely literal. You know, um, there's a great deal of metaphor that, that goes on in science where you can ask questions like, are genes literally selfish? You know, I mean, we, we say lots of things or, or we talk about, you know, uh, when you go inside of an atom, when we talk about the solar system model of an atom. I mean, we're, we're making use of a lot of metaphors that that work for us and helping us understand nature and helping us harness the forces of nature. But they're not literally true.
0: But, but they work they're they're quite effective It's amazing how whatever metaphor is currently the most popular it goes from being a metaphor to being no this is the reality and anyone who uses a different metaphor is like attacked and considered crazy I, I ran into this um, after interviewing Robin Hansen on their last episode about uh, artificial intelligence I came across this article where this guy was claiming that the human brain as a computer metaphor is, um, woefully insufficient and is perhaps causing a lot of research and thinking about uh, the human brain and about artificial intelligence to be less valuable than it could, or to go in the wrong direction. He sort of said, you know, back in the, whatever technology is prevalent, this is the metaphor that's used, you know, back in the day it was mud uh that that had a spirit breathed into it. That was the metaphor for the brain. And then during the hydraulic age, it was about the fluids, the humors in the body, these liquids and things that similar to a hydraulics. And then in the machine age, it was about cranks and dials and, you know, people envision the brain like a bunch of gears. That was the metaphor. And then in the computer age, they talk about things like processing information, uh, accessing memories, um, and the brain is likened to a computer. And he's saying why he thinks this is a, a bad metaphor. And I found it really interesting, um, compelling. And probably the metaphor is really valuable sometimes and probably limiting at other times because um, I, think, I think it's just a very simple point. So I shared it on Facebook and all of these like computer science, robotics, engineering types that just came out of the woodwork, just attacking this guy. And saying things like this is stupid he didn't even say anything in this article oh yeah this guy's a crackpot his credentials aren't good oh well i studied x y and z and i can tell you that the brain is like a computer and i'm just thinking the absurdity like the metaphors become so sacred i mean all this guy is saying is hey this metaphor it's valuable in many ways certainly um but it it's probably limiting in many ways and if the historical track record is any indication um it, it is limiting in some ways, because all the things that we've previously, you know, compared the brain to have been limiting. They've been useful in some ways, but they also limit us to seeing what the brain actually is as something distinct from something that we've built, you know, by ourselves. Very simple point. I don't see how anyone could not be like, oh, that's interesting, that's worth thinking about. But people are like angry and upset because the metaphor has become the reality. And so even when people think, you know, okay, in defense of using metaphor in science writing, people might think, oh, that's too casual or sloppy. But that's what's being done all the time. Every time you talk about memory and accessing pr- and processing ideas in the human brain, you are using metaphors. But they've been used so much; they're the dominant metaphors that we forget that they're metaphors, and they become what we consider sort of undifferent, like raw, true reality. But they're not. Oh, la- language doesn't let us communicate in in raw reality. It's always metaphor.
1: Oh, a- absolutely. And you know, we make utterances like spend your time wisely, or save your time, or invest your time. And these statements are quite meaningful, but they're not literally sensible. You know, those statements don't make it like, like, time isn't something that you can literally save or spend. We're using the time as money metaphor without realizing that we're doing it when we speak that way. You know, George Lakoff says in, in Metaphors We Live By that metaphors serve two functions. They simultaneously reveal and conceal. They highlight certain aspects of a thing that could not otherwise be, you know, seen in that way, and they also, you know, make it a little bit more difficult to see other important aspects of that thing. And and the key, and I believe you wrote about this on a uh, a recent uh, essay on on metaphors and magic. I I think that the key to the key to true magic, really is learning how to switch out your metaphorical maps, recognizing when they are working for you and when they're not by, you know, when are they revealing the things you need to see and when they're concealing things that you need to see, improving your ability to recognize that and switching out using different metaphors. Not making metaphors a sacred cow. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) My favorite is to to mix metaphors, you know? Put the proverbial... Finger in the dam to keep the ch- I don't know I'm trying I'm trying to mix a bunch of metaphors but I'm off my game right now. But, uh, <laughs> you you yeah, got
1: to go listen to some hits. The, some the sacred man. cow
0: jumped over the moon. Um, whatever. So let's let's just end it here, man. We're, I was going to talk about bandwagons uh, and defend them. And then uh, respond to an article Zach Slayback wrote saying that um, people are fetishizing failure and all this, you know, fail fast, failure is good in the startup world. Uh, and I was going to d- disagree strongly with that as well. Uh, but we'll, we'll, I want to I I talk more about those at length and I don't want to go on too long today. What do you think?
1: All right, man, we, maybe, maybe next time, but can we get an NBA finals prediction or, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, let's get an NBA finals prediction. You had on this list, um, this is really funny. Now that the Warriors are being on the verge of being eliminated from the playoffs, should they have chased win number 73? I think you put it on there when they were down like 3-1. Yep. <laughs> and I, I was sure I was absolutely sure they were going to lose. I mean, the Thunder played better. The Thunder were the better team in that whole series in every facet except for mentally. They just don't know how to win, and the Warriors just know how to pull it out. That was truly an amazing historic series. I will never forget that. I have never in my life seen a team look so much like they were going to lose and deserve to lose. They were just outplayed and somehow they pulled it out. So anyway, I think it's funny that that's uh, on our list of <laughs> things to discuss and we never got yeah. to it at the time. So, um, my prediction is the warriors. Uh, I was saying before last night, I was saying warriors in, in six, maybe even seven is going to be a tough series. Um, after last night, uh, the Warriors' offense was the worst I have ever seen it in my life. Steph and Clay were a disaster, and they still easily won by 15 points. Um, so it's pretty hard to envision them not winning the series, and it's pretty hard to envision it going to seven games. I would say, uh, <laughs> what what you told me yesterday was your prediction was the Warriors in four, five, or six, <laughs> which is a really bold prediction. Right, right. I'll, I'll stick with what I said before because things can get interesting. Um, you know Le- lebron james uh just barreling out of control into the paint and getting all kinds of foul calls can keep things <laughs> tight sometimes <laughs> like the classic fan who complains i'll say 6 games warriors you
1: warriors in 6 yeah i'm i'm going to say warriors in 6 just just because i feel like no no i'm going to i'm going to be a little bolder and say warriors in 4
0: <laughs> I love how you speak. All
1: right.
0: Um. Oh man, that's amazing.
1: Um, that's it, man. Go, go, Warriors. That's it.
0: Go Warriors. I had. I was gonna. Oh, there's something I was gonna say and I just totally, it totally slipped my mind. Something Warriors. Can, anyway, whatever. Doesn't matter. All right, TK. Thanks for chatting. Thanks for playing. Whatever. Thanks for. I don't. I don't even know how to end it. How should we end this?
1: Uh, metaphors. (laughs) No, no. We have to recommend, uh, content. Don't we do that every,
0: yes, you're right. Content. All right. I'm going to go with what I talked about a lot today. Uh, Christopher Alexander, um, find a timeless way of building or a pattern language, or he's got this four part series. I know super expensive, go to eBay and try to get it used. Um, try to pick up a timeless way of building. At least I highly recommend Christopher Alexander's work.
1: Uh, well I'll, I'll, stick with the theme of, of space and I'll recommend, um, space and place subtitled the perspective of experience. Uh, and then there's another, I'd recommend called landscapes of the soul, a spirituality of place.
0: All right, man. Rock right. and roll. Appreciate it. Have a good one. Zeke.
1: Peace. You too.